The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. You would go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We are going to be taking a probably imperceptible detour from our series on union with Christ. Uh, We're going to come to this text in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. But since our subject matter here is our great salvation, I have a green light. Uh, But since our subject matter here is our great salvation, which comes only in union with Christ, and all the benefits of salvation, which come only in union with Christ, the idea of union with Christ, of course, is saturated throughout uh, the text here. So, uh, as I said, even though uh, maybe a bit of a detour from uh, that is our theme, uh, we don't stray very far. So if you'd please... uh, Uh, Have your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to read uh, verses 1 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Christian, let me ask you, what is your hope? What is your hope? And I don't mean hope is the word gets used in our commonly used today of wishful thinking. I hope it doesn't rain today. I mean, what is your eternal hope? 1 Peter 3.15 says we are to be ready to give an account or to give a reason for the hope that we have as Christians to everyone who asks. Okay, but consider this. How do you explain an intangible concept such as eternal hope? Well, first of all, we can only explain that from the Scriptures. Because it's only in God's revelation to us that we have hope and have any idea what this hope is. Now, there are a number of succinct passages you could turn to that could convey this gospel hope. And I believe Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is a familiar text uh, that many of you would turn to to give this hope. And for good reason. It is a concise encapsulation of the gospel. 
fact, it's probably the second most popular memory verse, right behind John 3.16, which would be another good place to go. However, sometimes the familiarity of a verse can dull our senses to the greatness of the truth that it contains. And I believe that's especially true with Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, because, because Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is really a summary of verses 1 through 7. And unfortunately, many times when Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is considered, it's divorced from verse 10, which is kind of the climax of the whole passage. And so it results in a stunted and shallow understanding of what this passage teaches regarding our great salvation. And so therefore it's good for us to revisit familiar truths, to come back to those things that we already know, to uh, take out the shovel, so to speak, and mine the depths again a little more. And then through that, uh, being built up through this reminder of what it means to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now as we come to our passage today in Ephesians 2 and in verse 1, uh, we find this word and. And it connects, obviously, the text to the chapter that comes before. And what I want to draw your attention to is it especially connects it directly to the immediate context of Paul's prayer for the Ephesians in verses 18 through 23. And look over at verse 18. Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. You see it there? The hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? And so that's why Paul is, that's what Paul is praying for them. And that's what he's writing to them. And what he does in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, he goes on to define and describe the hope of their calling and the surpassing greatness of God's power to those who believe in Jesus. He prays for it for them in verses 18 to 23, and he tells it to them in verses two, one, uh, chapter 2, 1 through 10. And so his design here is to magnify the glory of God's grace by showing them uh, what God has saved us from, his motive in that salvation, and his end purpose in our great salvation. So we're going to cover it uh, under those three parts. I'm sorry I could not come up with a catchy alliteration for that. So here's what I have. Verses 1 through 3, dead men walking. That should be memorable. Verses 4 through 9, loving God saving, which hopefully will be the most memorable. And then lastly in verse 10, new creations working. So if we come to verses 1 through 3, uh, we, we begin with uh, our natural state by birth. And really as we work through, through these verses, we're going to see three things that God saved us from. And the first one is death. And, and it opens with, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It tells us what our natural state is by birth, uh, B.C., before Christ, before we came to Christ. What was our condition? What was our state? Well, we were dead. Now, we weren't half dead. We weren't mostly dead or partly dead. We were dead, completely. 
complete spiritual death. We were completely without spiritual life or ability. Uh, We were insensible to the things of God. If you remember two weeks ago, we talked about being dead to sin. and We talked about if you're dead to something, you're unaffected by it and you're uninfluenced by it. And that's the way we were. We were insensible to the things of God. We were dead to God. You know, we, we did not see God in His creation. Even in a great place like we live, you can look out in the mountains and we do not see that as the handiwork of a great, all-powerful Creator. Instead, when we're dead in our sin, what do we see? We look to the mountain itself and say, oh my God. And we worship the creation, Romans 1. But even worse than that, we suppress the truth written upon our hearts in unrighteousness. We're image bearers of God. We have His truth imprinted upon our hearts, and we just suppress that in unrighteousness. And our opening verse here tells us that this death that we're bound up in was caused by sin. Now, Paul's not stuttering here when he says you're dead in your trespasses and sins. He's not being repetitious. He's being very specific here. We are dead in our sin, our original sin, as as being a child of Adam, under the federal headship of Adam, inheriting his corruption and his depraved nature. We are dead in that. But we are also dead in our trespasses, the actual sins that we commit. And both of those separate us from God and leave us without hope. That's what he goes on to say in verse 12 when speaking of this this time in the Christian's life before Christ. He says you were apart from Christ, we were isolated from the covenants of promise, we were without God, and we were without hope in the world. And this is our condition. This is our native-born condition in which we enter into this world and in which we remain absent God's intervention. Spurgeon said about our trespasses and sin, he said they are our tomb. By them we are dead, our original sin. And through them, our actual sin, we remain dead. But this now brings us to uh, uh, the second thing we're saved from, which is the kingdom of darkness. Because in verses 2 and 3, we have this, this condition of the walking dead. Okay, before Christ, we're the walking dead. That's our condition. Uh, that's our state, if you will. But, but what is that like? And it says this sin that we were born into, that we continue to walk in, that we continue to walk in, is in accordance with the ways of this world and the prince of the power of the air. And what is in view here is this current evil age in this corrupt and fallen world as influenced by Satan. In three passages in the Gospel of John, uh, John refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. And in our passage here, the word prince simply means ruler. And power of the air refers to the fallen world system in this present age in which there is a spirit or disposition towards evil at work in the native sons of the first Adam. So verse 1 describes our condition before Christ. Verse 2 describes our way of life before Christ, apart from God. And this present evil age spoken of here is the kingdom of darkness. 
And the citizens of this kingdom, and that's everyone by birth, we are all native-born citizens of the kingdom of darkness, are under Satan's dominion and subject to his influence. And notice that, that this condition applies to all of us. In verse 2, he opens with, in which you formerly walked. So this was our way of life before Christ. We were born into this condition just like everyone else. And notice how he ends verse 3. And we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's who we were before Christ. And what we have to understand is there's no difference between the Christians and the world except that which is made by grace. We're not any better than anybody else. And that brings us to the third thing that he saved us from. He saved us from God's wrath. He goes on in verse 3 to further describe this way of life as living in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind. Okay, we have to understand, this was a life driven by the immoral desires of our physical nature and bondage to sin under the influence of this present evil age and Satan's its ruler, and it was being driven by the selfish desires of our own self-will. So what you have is, we have the corrupt physical urges of our flesh, we have the corrupt desires of our will, driving us into those, and we are being encouraged and cheered on by an evil world system that in our culture now even goes so far as demanding that all must affirm me in my sinful self-identity. And brothers and sisters, when we want to point the finger at the LGBTQ and all them that are trying to do that to us now, remember, before Christ... That was me. That was all of us. That's our nature. They're just acting according to their nature. We live to gratify our corrupt nature. We were complying with and being subject to the wishes of a depraved nature. We live for ourselves to gratify ourselves. We were born into a state of native depravity due to original sin, and this corrupt nature was our governing principle of life that continued to produce ongoing trespasses. And that is who we were. And Paul's purpose here in going into such great detail of our wretched, depraved condition and way of life is so that it can be contrasted with our present state by grace. Because remember, it's only grace that brought us out of this state and brought us out of this way of life. We were children of wrath by birth. Wrath was God's legal disposition towards us. But those in Christ are now children of grace by adoption. And that brings us to our second point, our loving God saving. Now, as we come to verse 4, every preacher that has ever preached this, ever preached this text 
has probably drawn attention to the first two words in verse 4, but God. And I would tell you, if they don't, they're negligent in preaching the gospel. Because in those two simple words, we have divine intervention in saving sinners. But God. But God. These words represent what God did to transfer us from the kingdom of darkness as citizens of the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved Son. God intervened, and we see here in His intervention, His motive in verse 4, His means in verses 5 and 6, and His purpose for this intervention in verse 7. His motive in saving sinners is His great love. And this ties back to chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. You ought to be able to just maybe look over to the page on the left. I want you to take a look at what it says. That it was in love, it was in love that God chose us in Christ and predestined us to adoption as sons in Christ according to the kind intention of His will. And of the many things you could take away from that, what I want you to take away is our salvation has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with any quality in us, any merit in us, or any action we have or might take. It came from within God who chose to set His love upon us before we were born, before we did good or evil. And this love is described as a great love. Now, it simply means the greatest or maximum love possible. Now, let's pause and try to wrap our minds around that for a bit. We're talking about God's love. God who is infinite. God who is love. Okay? And so His love is an infinite love. And Paul describes it here as the greatest or maximum possible infinite love. I can't even begin to explain what that is. Okay, we have the language of, of hyperbole and superabundance here. The love that saves sinners is the greatest possible love the infinite God could pour forth. That's one way it could be sated. I'm not exactly comfortable with that. I think it's accurate. I think maybe a better way for us to wrap our minds around it is to simply say, there is no greater way that God could show His love than what He does in our great salvation by sending His only begotten Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That I think we can understand. And chapter 1 verse 5 tells us that divine love is an impulse of the divine will. Okay, He loved us according to the kind intention of His will. And chapter 2 verse 4 says that this maximum divine love is rich in mercy. And this mercy is the means by which He saves us. Because mercy is the outworking of love that prompts one to act to relieve suffering. And so we see this in verse 5, that God loved us and was rich in mercy towards us even when we were dead in our transgressions. 
See, death had us locked up captive to our sin. You know, a prison would be a good picture of that. But I think we've got to go one step further. This was a hermetically sealed prison that didn't let anything from the outside in and didn't let anything from the inside out. We were sealed off, shut up. Our, our senses were sealed off and our faculties were shut off from God. But you see, God had pity upon us. And by His grace, He broke into that prison. And by His grace, He rescued the captive soul out of that prison of sin and death. And this free and liberal dispensing of mercy that comes forth from the fountainhead of God's love that issued forth in saving grace came at the time that we were dead in sin, under the rule and dominion of Satan, walking in the corruption of our nature as God's enemies. That's when he chose to do it for us. I think we can say that God's love came to us while we were being the worst we could possibly be. That's grace. You see, we not only could not do anything for our salvation because we're dead, we can't do anything. But the thing is, is even if we could, we would not do anything in that condition because our entire life was being driven by the lusts of our flesh and the desires of our mind. We didn't want anything to do with God. And that puts us in a position of simply deserving God's wrath and judgment. That's what we deserve. But because God has set His love upon us according to the kind intention of His will, He showed mercy. And His mercy did three things to save us. Made us alive together with Christ, raised us up with Christ, and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Now being made alive with Christ in the New Testament is almost always being used for, and it is in this case, the communication of the life of which Christ is the author. And here it stands for our deliverance from death and the imparting of spiritual life to us. So we have dead souls, dead souls that can't do anything. Those souls require to be they they require a force to act on them from outside and that force was our regeneration that made us alive. It was the work of God's spirit regenerating our hearts, making our hearts alive, infusing spiritual life into them and now we have spiritual life that comes forth from the living soul that is united to Christ. Where once we were insensible to the things of God, where once we were sealed up in our prison tomb, now we become aware of the things of God. Now we become attuned to the things of God. We feel the weight of our sin. We see the pending judgment that awaits us. We start to see how horrible our sin really is. We feel the conviction of soul and how we are an offense to the Holy God. And then we realize the total insufficiency of our own righteousness and our total inability to please God and escape His just wrath for our sin. And brothers and sisters, that's the work of the Holy Spirit 
convicting us of righteousness and judgment and the wrath to come. And if we stop right there, that is the ultimate picture of hopelessness. Absolute hopelessness. But the gospel doesn't stop there. You see, because the work of that Holy Spirit is also opening our eyes in the gospel to see the beauty of the Savior. To see the fullness and the suitableness of Christ's grace to our hopeless situation as the only possible way to be saved. And we now seek after the grace Christ offers in the gospel, having been made willing to believe, having been made willing to repent, having been made willing to seek God in prayer, willing to take refuge in Christ. That also is the work of God's Spirit. John 3 tells us a mystery. We don't know how He does it. The grace of Christ makes us alive in Christ, united to Christ, depending upon grace from Christ. And we now desire to walk in Christ. Do you see now at the end of verse 5 that the only thing Paul can say is, by grace you have been saved. And just as Christ was resurrected from the grave, so we too are raised to newness of life from our dead condition by this union with Christ. By our union with Christ, we are united. His death was our death. His life is our life. His exaltation is our exaltation. You know, let's don't stop after being raised to newness of life. It doesn't end there. Christ's exaltation is our exaltation. John Calvin said, The resurrection and sitting in heaven, which are here mentioned, are not yet seen by mortal eyes. Yet, as if those blessings were presently in our possession, he states that we have received them and illustrates the change which has taken place in our condition when we were led from Adam to Christ. It, as if, it is as if we had been brought from the deepest hell to heaven itself. And brothers and sisters, that's exactly what happened. Because he goes on to say we're seated with Christ in heaven. And what's in view here is Christ's ascension into heaven where he's seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling over this kingdom that the Father has given to him. And by virtue of our being united to him, we have been raised to heaven with him, and we are now seated with him in the heavenly places, and will receive our full inheritance in heaven upon our glorification, and it's such a sure deal that it's spoken of as if it has already happened. That's hope. That's the biblical variety of hope. That is not wishful thinking. It is a sure thing. It is in place now. We are there in spirit with Christ now, he will return one day to get us, and we will be with Him there in body and soul at that time. All the verbs here. Notice, all the verbs here are past tense. Okay? All the verbs. He made us alive, past tense. He raised us up with Him, past tense. We are seated with Him, past tense. And, and what it's, uh, what it's uh, communicating to us is, that this is a completed action with continuing effect in the presence. 
So there is yet another sense in which we are seated in the heavenly places with Christ right now. Because by the new birth, we have entered into the kingdom of God. What did Jesus say in John 3? Unless one is born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So by being united to Christ, by grace through faith, we receive the new birth, we enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is that realm in which God's rule over us is love and His law is obeyed. And this is in contrast to the kingdom of darkness, which we have been saved out of. And in this sense, we are now citizens of the kingdom of heaven under the realm of rule of Christ, under Christ's law, under Christ's protection and provision as our king. And we have title to all the privileges of adopted sons and heavenly citizens. That is ours right now, today. We are freed from the condemnation of the law. We are freed from the bondage of sin. We are freed from the tyranny of Satan. We are freed from the fear of judgment. And we are reconciled to God. And we are at peace with God in this life and the life to come. It is in virtue of our union with Christ that this change has taken place. And we now reign with Christ as we enjoy the blessings of kingdom citizenship in this life, right now, we have those. And, and we have the certainty, the absolute certainty of full title to all the blessings of kingdom citizenship in the life to come that is ours. How? Only in Christ. Because of what Christ has done for us, we have been rescued from the deepest hell and delivered to heaven itself. We are not yet there bodily, but we are there in spirit with our Lord, with whom we are united, until the last day when we are bodily gathered to Him in the new heaven and new earth. And our position in heaven is secured by the work of Christ. It's not secured by our work. It's not even secured by our faith. It's secured by the work of Christ. And our works now in this life flow out of our position in Christ in heaven. I want you to think about that now. Our works now in the Christian life flow out of our position with Christ in heaven. Here's what we have to understand. We are not working for heaven. We already have it. We are working from heaven. As part of Christ's kingdom on earth under his rule and his realm. Brothers and sisters, this is a great salvation. And if you're like me, I kind of look in the mirror and go, oh my goodness, why on earth would God do this for me other than according to the kind intention of his will? But we have a purpose statement here in verse 7. He starts out with, in order that. Why does God give this great salvation? In order that. He has a purpose for it. God was rich in mercy and saved us by grace to demonstrate the surpassing riches of His grace towards those who believe. That's what verse 7 says. That's also what Paul prayed for in verse 19. Okay, That we would know what are the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe. This gospel age here is contrasted to the darkness of the world 
in which the light of the gospel entered, uh, 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 revealing the exceeding abundance of God's powerful grace for the purpose of the complete salvation of sinners who believe in Jesus. This is the kindness of God that is the action of His mercy. Remember that, that train we had there, that, that God, according to the kind intention of His will, set His love upon us. And out of that maximum possible love, He was rich in mercy towards us. And out of that mercy now, He shows the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness. The greatest kindness ever shown was God giving His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And brothers and sisters, here's what he has to, we have to see in this. He not only wants us to know the surpassing greatness of His power to those who believe in Christ Jesus, verse 7 is telling us He wants the whole world to know. And He wants the whole world to know it through us. Through what He has done in us. So we come now to verses 8 and 9, the familiar text. Do you read, for by grace you have been saved through faith with a little different eyes right now? Because essentially, that phrase is a summary of verses 1 through 7. Everything we've just talked about is what it means to be saved by grace through faith. And these verses stand not only as a summary of what God has done to affect our great salvation, but also as a gospel call for all sinners to respond by receiving this great salvation by faith. Do you, do you see how we can recite these verses and become dull to the depth and riches of our great salvation and what it means to be saved by grace? We're saved by grace alone, flowing out of God's great love alone, in union with Christ alone. We contribute no decision or act to affect this new creation. We can't rebirth ourselves. It has to come from outside of us. We receive this salvation as a free gift through faith in Christ. And since we are dead in sin, both the faith and the blessings faith receives must come from God. And that's what we see in the rest of verses 8 and 9. Now the basic thought of grace, when he says, for by grace you have been saved, the basic thought behind grace is God freely giving. We focus on the undeserved nature of the favor. And that's part of it, not denying that. But we have to ask ourselves, what is it that's undeserved? It's God's favor. What's undeserved? What God's giving us. Okay, so, so the basic thought behind grace is this idea of God freely giving. And in our salvation, what He's giving is His Son to live a righteous life. He's giving us His Son to pay for our sin with His righteous life. And he's, then He's freely giving us His Son's righteousness uh, uh, to those who believe. And this grace, this, this, all that He freely gives is the good news of the gospel. That is the only way to be saved. And the only response to this gospel pleasing to God is to receive it by faith alone without adding any of our works to it. Grace is a gift that we receive through faith. 
Grace is completely, completely sufficient to save us, and we need nothing more than grace. We don't need any more grace than what we receive by faith, nor can we get any more grace than what we receive by faith. It's the only way to receive grace. And our assurance is based upon the complete sufficiency of Christ's work. Nothing in us, and it leaves no room for boasting, and that we contribute nothing to our salvation. Our salvation is based completely on the merit of what Jesus has done that we receive through faith alone. Now, don't miss this. Faith is a personal believing and trusting in the person and work of Christ. The sinner must exercise faith to be converted and be saved. We're not denying that. Okay, sinner, every last sinner here, you have to contend with the gospel. You have to look at the gospel. You have to look at this good news and decide, how am I going to respond to this? And there are only two choices. You either receive it by faith or you reject it. But we must exercise a personal believing, trusting in the person or work of Christ. And that faith has a content. We are believing in and trusting in that He is the Son of God. That He did earn all righteousness through His his own, His own personal, perfect, perpetual obedience to God's law. That He did die on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. That He did satisfy God's divine wrath and judgment upon sin that He did rise from the dead, that He is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And although this faith is personal, it has to be ours, we have to exercise it. It is not derived from within ourselves. It doesn't come from within. In that sense, it's not my faith, because God gives it to me. It only becomes mine by virtue of His gift to me. It's apart from us. It doesn't originate within us. Sinners are dependent on God's gracious gift for their believing response to the gospel. The scriptures are clear. Sinner, you must respond to the gospel by believing. And even the faith by which you believe is God's gift to you. Now, Paul wants to drive the point home. So he goes on with, not as a result of works. And that stands in direct contrast to saved by grace. In fact, if you look at verses 8 and 9, something that will help you read it with a little clarity, is that phrase right in the middle where he's explaining faith, and he says, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Just take that out and read it. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not as a result of works. Makes it real plain. Okay, we're saved by grace, not works. Okay, and now this is affirmed throughout Scripture. Many places. Three prominent texts. Romans 3.20, Galatians 2.16, Titus 3.5. And, and this has works in view and the broadest possible understanding of works. Okay? When he says you are not saved by works, that is as broad and as all-encompassing as it can be. It is works of any kind. It's moral works. It's religious works. It's works done before conversion, works done after conversion, 
works done with faith, works done without faith, none of them are the moving cause of your salvation. None of them are the procuring cause of your salvation. None of them are a helping cause of your salvation. And definitely none of them are the condition of your salvation. Man makes absolutely no contribution of any kind towards his salvation, not even the faith by which he receives the gift of grace. Because that faith does not arise out of anything in man, but is God's gift to us. Again, John Calvin said, Hence we see that the apostle leaves nothing to men in procuring salvation. In these three phrases, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works. He states that righteousness comes to us from the mercy of God alone, is offered to us in Christ by the gospel, and is received by faith alone without the merit of works. My personal faith does not arise out of any act or deed done by myself. And God's purpose in giving faith as a gift is so that I can't glory in my faith. I can't glory on account of my faith. I can only glory in God's grace to me and thus give Him all the glory for the gift of my faith and the gift of my salvation appropriated through the gift of faith. And this brings us to God's final and ultimate purpose in verse 10. New creations working. It says we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. We have been born of God as John would say in chapter 1 verse 13. And we have been born of God as new creation. Ephesians 4.24 describes this as that we have been recreated. Okay, When we were when man was made, we were created in the image of God. The fall has corrupted that image of God. In our regeneration, our recreation, we have been recreated in the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And God's purpose in our recreation is that we would indeed do deeds and acts that are upright, honorable, and acceptable to God. And not only that we would do them, but that we would grow and progress in doing them throughout the Christian life. Remember, our salvation is a completed action in the past with continuing present effect for the purpose of demonstrating the surpassing greatness of God's power to those who believe. And he wants that demonstrated to the whole world. How does he do it? He does it through our good works. This is where works comes in in the Christian life. But brothers and sisters, even our good works are of grace. They are those done in faith. They are done, those done in accordance with God's law and God's word. And they're for the purpose of glorifying God. And again, what's in view here is the broadest possible field of good works through which we put on the display of the surpassing greatness of God's power to us. We have a tendency, I think, to think of these good works as that's got to be something really special, some super saint thing, you know, like, you know, go be a martyr or, you know, some missionary in the jungle. That's not, well, those are definitely good works. I'm not saying they're not, but that's generally not what's in view in here. He's talking about the day-to-day -day things of life. 
And I just got to tell you, an example that came to mind to illustrate this, and it might not be wise because I'm going to use a, a meme I saw on Facebook to illustrate it, but it, it fits and it works, so I'm going to use it. I saw a meme on Facebook once, and somebody put up, said, the guy that wrote the song, Easy Like Sunday Morning, never had to get kids ready for church. Right? And every mother in here knows that especially, because usually it's mom doing that work. And brothers and sisters, that's a good work. Think about what you're doing on Sunday morning when you're getting those kids ready for church. This is a work act. This is a work done in faith. Why? Because you believe that it's the power of gospel and the salvation, and you want to have your children sitting under the preaching of that gospel. You're getting those kids ready for church in faith, trusting that God's going to work through that. It's in accordance with the Word of God because you've been commanded to bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and to come and gather with God's people on the Lord's Day and have your family under the teaching of the Word of God. And it's for the purpose of glorifying God that when that child is saved and child after child after child is saved, God is filling His creation with His worshipers and that glorifies Him. Getting your kids ready for church is a good work as defined by the Scripture. Men, when you go to work on Monday, and you go and you labor as unto Christ and not men, that's a good work. It's done in faith. It's according to the Word of God. And it's for the purpose of glorifying God. These are the good works. The field is broad. They are many. And by them all, we testify to the world of the surpassing greatness of God's power to those who believe and the surpassing greatness of the gospel. And these good works do not bring our acceptance with God. Our acceptance with God is not based on these works in any way. But these works are vital and indispensable consequences of our salvation that give evidence that we have indeed been raised to newness of life with Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are recreated image bearers. And here's what I want you to think about as a recreated image bearer. We have been made fit to live a life that conforms to God's character. Romans 8, God's purpose to conform us to the image of His Son. Here's another way to think about this. We have been made fit now to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We have been transformed in our salvation. We go from walking in sin as a son of disobedience under the influence of Satan, the ruler of this world, to walking in good works as adopted sons of God that God predestined beforehand that we should be holy and blameless before Him to the praise of the glory of His grace. This is our great salvation. This is our hope as Christians. This is what it means to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. Now you here who do not know Christ, I must exhort you by the command of God to hear this good news that has been proclaimed to you and to repent and believe in the gospel. That is the only response to the gospel pleasing to God. 
And the only other option is to remain in your sin. And you've now heard what a miserable state that is. But brothers and sisters, likewise by the command of God, I must exhort all of us to walk in a manner worthy of this calling which which we have been called, so that in this present evil age right now, we might show the surpassing riches of God's grace in kindness to all who believe in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, oh Lord, it is a great salvation that you have wrought for us. Uh, One we can uh, hardly even wrap our minds around. One which fills our hearts, Lord. Father, we pray that that just by diving into these truths again, you would build us up in the most holy faith, Lord. You would strengthen us in the faith. Uh, You would uh, strengthen our assurance of this hope and all that awaits for us in heaven, all that you have given us in Christ, in, in title as adopted sons and citizens of your kingdom. Father, what a great salvation. We thank you, Lord, so much. We pray now that as we come to this table, Uh, We would come uh, in this context thinking upon the greatness of what Christ has done for us. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com. Wyoming.com.